0: You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a
1: podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. On today's show, I am joined by an interesting fellow watch blogger, one of the only true other watch bloggers I actually call a watch blogger. Jake, we've known each other for a while. Um, Introduce yourself to the superlative audience.
0: Yes, we've known each other for many moons. Um, And basically, we got started uh, just about the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think, if I recall correctly, you started first. And that was two thousand
1: seven.
0: Yeah, and then I started right after you, and then uh, Ben from Hodinky started right after me. I think that's the so that succession. was he, he
1: was started in two thousand nine. Oh, two thousand nine. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think you were two thousand seven. Yeah. I was two thousand eight, and he was two thousand nine. Yeah. So I'm in my thirteenth year. So now you're here in, in your fourteenth year. Oh, um, right?
1: Wow. <laughs> So it's crazy, huh? So, Jake, tell everyone, because you have multiple websites. So just like explain, like, tell them about your websites and we're going to go into it.
0: Yeah. You know, my websites are kind of like, uh, my blogs are kind of like notebooks for me. Um, well, n- name them,
1: tell the sites. People got to like, they want to know what it is. Like they, they still don't know. Like got to tell the sites.
0: Uh, okay. So, so I have, uh, my, my premier, uh, blog is rolexmagazine.com. Rolexmagazine.com is a good one yes i also have patekmagazine.com
1: patekmagazine.com there's a theme and Panerai magazine.com. and com. so the three magazines and and no more just these three brands right
0: no 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 i got a lot more i have oh, uh, okay. tesla i have tesla magazine.org oh okay and, uh, tesla i'm also the uh, founding ceo of bullet train um, which you can always visit bullettrain.com we make the best accessories for Apple products.
1: So you're a, you're, a, you're a hardware guy. You make things, not watches, but you make things that um, allow you to understand form and function. Which again, I, I point that out because I find that most people who are into watches like this, uh, we have some other part of our life which sort of allowed us to appreciate uh, you know, minor details, form and function. It's like a prerequisite to really being into watches.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm a design fanatic of the highest order. I eat, breathe, and sleep design. And so to me, the watches in particular, just like Tesla, uh, it's all about design and form following function and um, innovation and timeless design and you know stuff like that. Um, particularly I'm I'm most affected by Rolex because I got my first Rolex when I was 16 years old, which was back in the eighties. Um, and ever since then, I've been a Rolex fanatic of the highest order.
1: I mean, like I've known you for well over a decade now and I'm just learning today that you had like the Tesla magazine, like all those other ones, you know, I knew about, but like, you can't be nearly as passionate about, about Tesla as Rolex, because Rolex is like what you you can't stop talking about. It's like you want to be into it. But I think maybe you're more interested. Is it is it Tesla or is it Mr.
0: Musk? Uh, both. Um yeah. but really Tesla. Um, don't get me started on Tesla because I won't stop. Um, I'll, I'll you're, you're, to you and you're
1: interested more. in and in, I think companies as well. Like it's not what just what they make, but Rolex as a company, just like it's endlessly fascinating to you, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in particular. Um, one of my key points of fascination, and I, I am admitted, admittedly the president of the Rolex fan club. Um, but one of the things that really, really uh, was fascinating to me was Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex. Because when I started Jake's Rolex World, um, which is you can visit at rolexmagazine.com, when I started it, uh, there was nothing like he, he didn't exist. Basically, there were two photos of him on the web, one where he had the crazy professor hairdo, like the kind of Einstein hairdo. And it was, and and I named the article uh, The Ghost in the Machine, because it was was as if he had never existed to begin with. He's an elusive character. Yeah, and I found that to be a travesty because we're talking about one of the most successful entrepreneurs in history. Roland Um,
1: loves to celebrate people, but they rarely talk about him. Did you ever figure out what they're trying to hide? Uh,
0: I don't think they were trying to hide anything. Well, they didn't want to promote it. Well, you know, I think what it was, and I I, I was very confused by this, uh, just like, you know, you and probably everybody else, and, and, and thought, you know, are they hiding something? Um, and what I discovered, it was even more fascinating, which was that basically when he was alive, he had scrapbooks and, you know, he was like a proud father, basically. Really? I thought he had no heirs. Well, he I know he had he had he he has a number of heirs, um, uh, nephews and nieces and stuff who live um, in and around Europe. But no, no children. No, no children. Okay, but Rolex was his child. Yeah, Um, and he set up a trust and he left all of his shares in Rolex to the to the Hans Wilsdorf Foundation, which owns Rolex today. And most people would be surprised to learn that Rolex is a nonprofit. Uh, which is very strange and peculiar because it's got to be an extremely profitable company. Um, but Rolex uh, very quietly donates a tremendous amount of their proceeds to charities um, all over the world. They support a lot of whoa, stuff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It,
1: is it is Is it that Rolex is a non-profit or it's controlled by the foundation, the Hans Wilsdorf Foundation, which is a non-profit?
0: My understanding is that the foundation is a nonprofit, and because it holds 100% of the shares in Rolex, uh-huh. that everything flows through to the foundation.
1: But that means but, that Rolex can still make a profit.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Rolex, the company itself, uh, I think that they have certain um, things they work on too, independent of the foundation. Where they support different organizations having to do with their perpetual planet campaign and stuff like that, right?
1: I mean, those and those initiatives, like those are not those are serious business. Those aren't like some marketing games like at some other watch companies.
0: What other companies do, uh, you know, in in any field, is they will give away some money to some entity or thing, and then they have the cheerleaders come on, go rah rah rah. You know, we gave all this money. Aren't we great? Um, where Rolex typically does it invisibly, where they do the opposite, where they, they don't want credit, uh, for it. Uh, they support a lot of things that are almost like kind of shocking in a great way that you wouldn't expect. Like what? Yeah. I've stumbled into all kinds of interesting things, uh, with Rolex that they, uh, support. Um, you know, like a, a really good example would be, um, their, uh, enterprise, uh, awards, for instance. Um where they support students all over the world, uh, their mentor and protege program as well, um, where they have uh, famous mentors like uh, Martin Scorsese, who's also a Rolex brand ambassador um, as a mentor to a young director, for instance. So they, they invest a lot of money in very peculiar, strange things that are off the radar. They're very powerful and have an impact on the world, I think. Um, but in a very quiet way.
1: Where's our um, mentors, Jake? I don't. I don't remember ever getting a mentor.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, I think we're our own mentors. Uh, uh, you know.
1: So okay. So I, I have a theory. Yeah. And maybe you can have some feedback on the sort of validity of this theory. And it has to do with why the Hans Wilsdorf Foundation is a nonprofit. Okay. So mm-hmm. you know, I have a background in law, and mm-hmm. one of the most interesting areas in law for me was wills and estates. And the idea uh-huh. is sort of um, succession law, like how do you control and plan for your property, your you know, your money, your wealth, your estate your after you die. Your yes. booty.
0: Right. Well, it's more. It's I, more went to, than just I went chattel. to law school as well.
1: We, we chattel is one of the better words. You're right. Um, right. <laughs> it's you know, and and so what he did is he recognized probably that without him at the helm. Rolex can go in any number of directions, many of them would be you know directions he didn't want so it's's been this, this question as old as time is like how do you keep your country going you know the way you want it to be when you're when you're gone? How do you keep your your business going and Patek Philippe today is actually struggling with it, but this is a different story and so how does Rolex continue to do what Rolex does and there's he built a lot of mechanisms around it, I think it's actually quite brilliant what he did, but when it comes To the nonprofit, I think that he felt that if Rolex was seen as just a a cash cow, people would strip it down, make it too efficient, make it lose its thing, and ultimately siphon off profit for some type of third party gain. By making sure it's run by a nonprofit, it disincentivizes people who are actually in decision making capacity. From just thinking about their best interests, thinking about just, you know, literally profit, uh, thinking about investors, right? Because as we know, the sort of um, detached investor does nothing good for the company. It only acts as a leech. And so uh-huh. I think that Mr. Wilsdorf knew about all these things and understood that's what could happen and designed this complicated structure as, and, and this is ironic because it's the watch industry, but a perpetual motion machine.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on this subject, but I've researched it quite a bit out of curiosity, and what I learned is, with the Wilsdorf Foundation, they have these interesting bylaws where, I believe, and and you know, uh, I, I might be a little bit off on this, but I believe the way it works is, the vast majority of, of the proceeds go to Geneva, to the Canton of Geneva, and um, so oh, no, they it has build. To, it has to be spent there. No, no, it's um, they, they build uh, schools and. all, have all kinds of like scholarship programs and stuff, but and they the also reason- buy
1: up real estate. They own an enormous amount of
0: actual Geneva real estate. I've heard that as well. Yeah, I, I heard that they're one of the.
1: So I'm saying biggest- well, I, I'm not disagreeing with them. I'm saying maybe one of the things he said is the profits that come out of this have to be spent. Within this area where the workers are, I mean, think about it—that would be brilliant, right? Like, again, we're just guessing, but if 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 you agree that he built in something like that, he may have said, "Okay, so the the Geneva headquarters is you know located here. I want to benefit the people that live in this area. Maybe I don't know, twenty five percent or whatever of the proceeds have to be spent within I don't know, fifteen miles of here. Just you know, just making a making well, it. Up, we like,
0: do know. Well, we do know that he said, um, and I'm I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but he said something to the effect that... You can't
1: do Wiltor's quotes yet? <laughs> uh, no, I'm pretty
0: good. Pretty good. Um, but <laughs> if I'm off by a word or two, don't do uh, don't hold it against me. But he said something to the effect that um, everything I have, I owe to Geneva. Every, everything I am uh, is, is because of Geneva. And we should remind so he, people this
1: is not a Swiss man.
0: No, no, not at all. Um, this was actually kind of a a man who was countryless in a peculiar kind of way. He was almost kind of like a gypsy. Um, yes, he was born in Bavaria, which is now, uh, Germany. Um, and he, but he, he was an Anglophile and he moved to London and married his first wife, um, and lived very happily in London. And, uh, Basically, ran a lot of the manufacturing from London, you know, for for Rolex in the early days, and then yeah. after World War One, the British government passed a number of laws that um, he thought were way too ridiculous. So he uh, La- labor laws, yeah, and tariffs. Um, so he moved. Uh, he moved uh, Rolex's headquarters to Geneva. Um, Keep labor
1: that. at the time. <laughs>
0: Well, and the other thing, too, is that uh, because he had a, a German name, like Hans, you know, Hans, I'm Hans, Hans feels look, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a tremendous amount of disdain for Germans um, in England after World War One, And I think that probably on some level contributed to his move to Geneva. Yeah. At, at least that's, that's my understanding of it.
1: Um, that could be the case. I mean... Also, he was, you know, notably a control freak. And if his production and everything is happening in Switzerland, it kind of makes sense to live there, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, the strangest thing um, (laughs) about the whole equation is that when we think of Rolex today, when just about anybody thinks of Rolex, we think of the Swiss watch establishment big time. But the supreme irony in this is that Rolex began in function for its fir- the first half of its life, if you will, uh, or of its years that it, it's been in business for over 100 years since 1905 or 6, depending on how you measure it. They spent the first half being, you know, the outsider. They were a Genevan outsider and they were frowned upon by the Genevan establishment with companies like Omega and stuff. But
1: that's everything um, in Geneva. This If it's new, it's frowned upon,
0: <laughs> okay? That's... Yeah, yeah. But now now it's very, you know, she, she, Geneva, but uh, it wasn't always that way. Um, So here's a man who spent uh, until his dying day, um, you know, being an underdog and struggling against the status quo. But really what I wanted to capture was I wanted to learn about Hans Wilsdorf. So I have an article um, that you can see if you... Visit rolexmagazine.com on the right side. If you scroll down a few feet, it says like a Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, and it's everything I've been able to put together over the last thirteen years.
1: It still doesn't sound like you've learned that much. Like like, what kind of person was he once Rolex became super successful? No,
0: quite no, quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. If you if you read the article. Uh, I've gone very 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 deep into who he was and his ethos and his mindset um very very deep uh, so share, so
1: share uh, some some anecdotes about his about his life especially you know after Rolex became so big
0: yeah so you know what's really interesting is um I I deeply researched his story and was getting ready to publish it in its first draft um and since then it's been through dozens of drafts because I, I update it all the time um whenever new information comes in it's instantly updated um but i was getting ready to publish my first draft and uh, about a week before somebody reached out to me and said i have a book that i've found that hans Wilsdorf wrote and i said what are you talking about and he said yeah it's in, Eng- it's in english and i'd be happy to send you uh, copy, and it was called Vade Mecham. So I read it, and it just completely blew my mind because it was Hans Wilsdorf telling Rolex's story in his own words. Wow. But this was perplexing, though, because... and challenging, because I had just written this whole story. Um, so I read his story in his own words very, very carefully, and I was like, okay, what do I do now? Like, on the one hand, I just want to, you know, republish what he wrote because it wasn't a, a long book. Um... But I have this body of work I've created to offer insight. So what I did, it was just very peculiar and strange, was I tied them together. So basically, I published the entire contents of his writing, and I put it in green, bold, italic. So whenever he's talking, you know, it's him. And when it's not bold, green, italic, it's me talking. So he'll you'll you'll read through paragraphs that he writes, and then I'll interject and say, By the way, you know, um, I'll elaborate or maybe share an anecdote of my own, you know, that adds insight into what was going on at the time. So we're constantly bouncing in and out of him telling his story and me adding to his story and helping to tell his story. Um, And they're incredible anecdotes. You know, one of them, I'll give you an example, uh, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, including yourself, which is the Rolex Cyclops lens, the date magnifier lens, um, and its origin and where it came from. And basically his first wife died and he got remarried to a woman named Betsy. And uh as you mentioned, he was a control freak and he was um supposedly he would spend like an hour or two every morning in the bathroom just like, you know, combing his mustache and preparing himself for the day. Um, which explains why Rolexes are so detailed oriented um and he had shown his wife they had had many discussions about the rolex date just and the rolex Datejust just was the first watch to have a date aperture window in it um which today seems like no big deal because everybody and their mother has them but when rolex pioneered that in 1945 that was like a really big deal I mean, it was deal. such a big deal they put it in the name i mean you know Exactly. And when they first introduced that model in 45, it didn't have that name. It wasn't called a Datejust. It was just... Oh, what? It wasn't? No, no, no. It wasn't until I think '47 that they, 1947 that they actually formally named it the Datejust. Um, but what was interesting is his wife was complaining and she was saying, it's so hard to see the date because it's so small. And he said, yeah, I understand. She said, you've got to figure out a way to make it bigger so it's easy to see. And he said, we just can't fit it in. We can't fit a wheel with 31 digits inside a watch unless we make it, you know, like a 47 millimeter Panerai or something crazy like that, which isn't going to work. So the the, the big date had
1: never been there. Like that wasn't a thing yet. I don't even know when that was
0: invented no 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 i think that was uh uh in longinson or something in the 90s late 90s that came i don't think they did the days.
1: first one i don't think they did the first
0: one anyway that's another well, discussion. well i think what they did was they did they did the date with two wheels you know one was one through three and the other was uh zero through yeah nine.
1: no no they yeah. did i just don't know if that long was the first
0: one to do it right well, yeah longinson but he but but uh But Rolex was the first to do a single digit aperture wheel. So you could have, you know, the number three or the number 23. Um, So that created a a size limitation. So as the story goes, one day he's in the bathroom and he's doing his fastidious stuff, whatever it was, and he's doing something in front of the sink, washing his hands or something. And uh, water splashes on his watch and just happens to land over the date wheel. Oh, and created a lens effect. Exactly. And he comes, as the story goes, he comes running out of uh, his bathroom, screaming at his wife, I figured it out. I finally figured it out. And, and she says, figure what out? And He like literally ran out the door, um, said to his chauffeur, let's go, and uh, went to Rolex um, and sat down with the engineers and said, Look and recreate it and they're like, oh my God. And he's like, we gotta figure out how to do this somehow. I don't know how we're gonna, you know, put a bubble of water on it that's gonna magnify the date, but we've got to figure out how to do it. And so I, I think it it took them two years as well. I think that's when they came out with the name for the date, just was right around the time they came out with the Cyclops. You know what but, really
1: impresses me about that story is that you know, he got really excited about it. You know, he was enthusiastic. It made a story, you know, it wasn't like a oh, I figured it out. And you know, people get that, get that excited. Tend to be ambitious people. Ambitious people want to make money, want to make a name for themselves. If you already have a chauffeur and you're still excited about an innovation like that, that's, I guess, an interesting sign of your character. You know, it really has to do with his ambition, what he cares about, and things like that. I think we've sort of become accustomed to the watch industry being just the luxury industry. Back then, it was more than that. It was the tool industry, and so. It's not, it wasn't just about making money. It was about solving problems. It was about creating things that could, that could do important tasks like telling the time and dangerous places or hard to get places and things like that. It was a completely different type of industry with a d- completely different type of mentality than we have today. And It's sometimes challenging for even people like you and me that are kind of interested in the history to relate to that.
0: I don't, I don't think he was motivated by money um, at all. Uh, I, I think he was, in the sense that you you have you have to keep books, obviously. But he was so successful so early on um, that just like Elon Musk, for instance, he could have retired and lived on a private island and set my ties all day long if he wanted to. But, but he didn't. I think he, didn't. he would. I think he was obsessed and preoccupied with timekeeping and trying to take it to the next level because you know there's a lot of evidence. Um, and I have uh I, I have his. Uh, parts of his pocket watch collection in his story he's a big pocket watch collector and he owns some of the most beautiful and complicated sophisticated pocket watches um, which were the generation you know that obviously came before him but he became convinced at a very early time in horological history at least for us it's early um, you know around say uh, world war ii 1914 yeah uh, and he he actually articulated it and I'll, I'll I'll quote it he said my personal opinion is that pocket watches will almost completely disappear and that the wrist watches will replace them definitively if i am not i i'm not mistaken in this opinion and you will see that i'm right so he was kind of like elon musk because elon is helping on electrifying the fleet of automobiles in the world hans wilsdorf was is the same kind of energy but what he was focused on was making all watches wristwatches or wristlets as they called them back then um and that's what that that was very important to him and he saw great value in that and um you know rolex in 1926 invented well actually they didn't really invent it but they came up with the uh they patented the waterproof wristwatch which was a complete you know, game changer. Probably the single greatest innovation in the history of the personal timekeeping. Yeah, the Oyster. And then, four short years later, in 1931, um, and these are back to back. They came out with the uh, Perpetual, which was the world's first um, patented effective uh, <laughs> automatic <laughs> movement. I like now, you
1: threw effective in
0: there. Well, they, they <laughs> you know, they Rolex did not invent the waterproof watch. Nor did they the invent the automatic. Yeah, um, they, they but, actually have
1: invented very much. They invented, they they made things better and, yeah. and uh, bring a higher quali- higher Does quality. That,
0: Apple, think Apple, right? You know, Apple's thing. They didn't invent the, the the phone or you know, but they pretty much invented the smartphone. But they didn't even invent that. Um, so just it for
1: mass production.
0: Yeah, he was so shrewd uh, as a marketer. Um, but I don't think he was motivated by money per se. I think he was like Elon Musk, you know, he was just fascinated with innovation and, and, and trying to innovate in that space. Um, But it was was a
1: space that was ripe for it. I mean, I think that you know people admire these individuals, but I think to a degree we also recognize that while they were good at what they did, they were lucky. They happened to be in a space where there was desire to to fuel the the research and development of this innovation. There was buyers. You know, military would go to them and be like, "Hey, we have this crazy thing. Can you help us solve it?" And you know, military budget is you know it's it's basically whatever you ask for at some point. So I think that. You have to recognize that he was so fortunate to have those opportunities that, like pretty much any entrepreneur, would have just died to have.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. But but most importantly, though, I think he he had some kind of keen sense on what to do with those opportunities, um, and he, he was just very effective. So I I I was just fascinated with telling his story, and I want to know um, I want to know who this man was and what made him tick. And how he did what he was able to do, and so that's that's uh, you know why I wrote that story, um, which I highly recommend um, for everybody to read because it's, it's just it's only uh,
1: it's it is it more or less than eighteen thousand words?
0: Uh, it's a really good question. I don't yeah. know because I don't keep track of words. It's uh, <sighs> I would say I'm I'm a kind of slow reader, especially if it's something I'm really into. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh while well, I like to savor stuff and really think about it. And you know, like if I if I'm going deep on something, I like to really just kind of immerse myself in it.
1: I, I mean, um, I I want to say to everyone like your your stuff is very thorough, no doubt. But it's what I what I kind of it's it's hard not to find it charming. But your stuff is it's almost obscenely long, not in a oh, bad yeah. way, but there's no yeah. it's like. There's no pagination. Like, I think you actually <laughs> invented infinite scroll is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm damn <laughs> proud of it. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. I think I did too. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, you know, one thing I did pioneer um, was the large images. Um, uh, if you go back and you look, I I, I was, you know, after like three months, I'm like, these images in blogger are too fucking small, man, what the, I can't see anything, you know? I want high bandwidth to the brain. And that's what you get with a high res image. So I thought back to my childhood and uh, my mother had a subscription uh, the first year that People Magazine came out. And so when I was a little kid, I was just sitting there. I think I was uh, was like 10 years old. I was just like flipped through. Same thing with Nat Geo um, and Time Magazine. So I thought, what if I had those magazines in front of me and I took a, an X-Acto knife and just cut the pictures out and stuck them on my computer screen? How wide would they be? What would they look like? And I came up with the 800 pixel wide format, which today is you know the standard, and a lot of blogs have gone beyond that. But for me, that seemed like the perfect Goldilocks yeah. zone.
1: You 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 always seem to put a lot of effort into editing the images and finding really high resolution ones. You've always had yes. for a long time nice and restoring ones. images a
0: lot. Yeah, do I spent a tremendous amount of time. Do on. you
1: remember when you looked at those magazines and you were younger? Do you remember the Rolex watch ads?
0: Of course, yeah, yeah. I was very deeply inspired by them. Um, I took them very seriously, uh, and was just—it it was like a, a cult for me, you know. But it was like it was a cult of sobriety or like seriousness, and it was—they um, seemed so sober and serious to me. And I love them, and they—they they inspired me, and they—they they really reminded me of Jacques Cousteau um, in the exploratory sense.
1: They were tales of adventure. Like the, the, the ad was a page, but oftentimes were their own little articles and they would inform the reader about something that the reader actually ended up caring about, which was very different than a lot of the other ads.
0: Big time. And, and it was really about, the thing that they share with Jacques Cousteau uh, is the spirit of inquiry. Rolex was very much immersed in the spirit of inquiry and they still are to this day uh, as an exploration company. But those old ads are just, you know, they're classic. I, you know, my idea when, when you and I were back at uh, at Rolex when they invited us, and we'll get to that. I was talking with some of the executives, and I said, "Would you like my opinion on what you guys should do?" And they said, "Yeah, of course." They I did said, humor us. I don't know that they cared, but they humored us. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I said, you know, I look at these Rolex ads today, and it looked like the, you know, the company that did Apple did them, but after. The Apple ads, you know, they look Apple esque, if you will, like minimalist. And, you know, just a few words, and they're not—they're not like the the Rolex ads that we grew up with when we were kids, or at least when I was a kid. Um, and I said, what I would do is I would start publishing vintage Rolex ads in all the magazines today. And the guys like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, like take the AJ Foyt day date ad from 1973. I would take it exactly as it appeared in 1973 and put it in next month's GQ magazine. Cause people love vintage stuff, right? Like vintage Rolex watches. So <laughs> like can you imagine like you're flipping through a GQ or whatever? Uh, you know, and 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 you see like this weird old Rolex ad, and you look at it and you're like, something's a little off about this, but the watch is exactly the same thing they sell today. I mean that that would be an incredible advertising campaign. or they have they have
1: they do a whole a two page spread and one side is the old ad, and then there's like the the same it's like the same watch with a new version and it's just a contemporary version, exact same design of the ad. Just like a contemporary
0: story. Well, I, I think it'd be more memorable and weird just to put old ads in. Um or you could do both. Trust me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the old ad the, the point is the old ads stand up so well and they're so interesting. Um, i well, think they, they're they put they put effort universe. into
1: them like these days they put they put like 90% of the effort in the ads on you know cgi and getting the picture just right it's like this insanity it's like insane amount <laughs> of money into this ultra highly produced image and there's like no effort left from anyone to actually put it into the storytelling so there's like no words or it's just purely descriptive it's it's just it's just imagery now, which is great. But um, what you and I know is that imagery doesn't work nearly as well as actual shots. And that's why, like, you know, for us, we try to do as much original photography for you. You try to find as much people. And I think what I found most fascinating, especially about the way that you would cover watches, is, like, I distinctly tried to have, like, a small amount of people on the blog to watch, right? Because I wanted to be about the product. I wanted the, the the audience to sort of, like, inject themselves. I'm wearing that watch. I'm doing that thing. And you... You know, your stuff is all about the people, and so, so no one really ever does that. Most people do it about the product. Now, you can't have a watch culture without talking about the product. And you need to have both. But you've been so interested in celebrating some of the people, and the funny thing is, you know, um, a lot of watch lovers, like computer nerds or car guys, were are kind of antisocial and weird. So you're kind of like you're 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 part of that audience for sure. That crew of of kind of like slightly antisocial people, but you're obsessed with and in, in being interested in people. And I, I like that snapshot because most people don't really get that.
0: Yeah, and, you know, like, uh, for instance, there were a lot of uh, myths when we got started floating around about Rolex. Um, and I would just follow up on them because, you know, I heard about the Paul Newman Daytona and I had seen it and it was kind of... What are some of these it,
1: myths? Let's, like, tell tell people, like, two of them.
0: Oh, I have an article um, where I busted, like, every Rolex myth in existence. But... Um, Jeez, where to like start? What's the
1: Rolex myth? Like, like okay, yeah. the
0: the the myth of the uh, the Steve McQueen explorer is an example. What's
1: okay? What tells the story?
0: So the myth was that um, <laughs> you know there's the Paul Newman Daytona, which is very real, uh, and then all of a sudden but he, just, he wore that.
1: Yeah, there's the for, for the Italian photographer shoot.
0: Yeah, and uh, and that was up. And uh, <laughs> the the. the Italians adopted this thing and were like, "Wow, this is really cool," you know. Like, and then there's must be the, hey, Steve McQueen or a Rolex, didn't he? Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, you know, like remember Saturday Night Live, the liar guy? Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, last night I went on a date with Mark and Fairchild. Yeah, and she was climbing all over me. Yeah, that's it. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's before your time, I actually do remember that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, John Lithgow. That's it. We were like, so in the eighties, yeah. huh? Eighties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was so funny, and um, so so some Italian auction houses were like, "Yeah, that's the ticket." There's the the Steve McQueen Explorer. Yeah, the Orange Hand. That's it. The Freccioni. Yeah, sixteen fifty five. Yeah, and they made this up. So
1: what's the myth and, exactly? I understand that he so invented it or that, what?
0: No, 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 no. That Steve Mc... There is the quote unquote Steve McQueen Rolex Explorer to Orange Hand reference sixteen fifty five. Oh, a watch that doesn't, has never existed, you mean? No, it's very much a real watch, the 1655. You know, the orange hand, the original Explorer yeah, too yeah. had an orange hand on it. Yeah, yeah. So, very real watch, but it was falsely associated with Steve McQueen. Oh, so someone could
1: sell it for more money.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, somebody had seen a photograph of him okay. wearing a Submariner, but they were stupid, and they're like... Yeah, it's the Steve McQueen wears a Rolex. Yeah, it's the Explorer 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have one for sale. You want to buy it? And it was fake. The challenge is to this day, some auction houses, and I'm not going to mention them, still publish it. And every time they do, I publish on RolexMagazine.com what they said, and I say, anybody who refers to this watch is Steve McQueen is a complete idiot and should not be trusted because they don't know what they're talking. And they're They're continuing to perpetuate this false myth. And in the world of vintage Rolex, we don't need these false myths because the real history is so great. So, you know, Mr. Big Shot know-it-all, Jake, you know, how do I know it to be a fact? Well, among other things, I interviewed his son, Chad McQueen, about it. I interviewed Steve McQueen's um, uh, first wife, uh, Neil um neely and she told me about how when she was in 19 in 1969 they were in switzerland in zurich and he bought two submariners you know and he wore them all the time and i've chronicled that but you know and the the, the supreme irony is that um jean-claude keely you know there's the jean-claude keely tri-compact rolex or whatever that's associated with him Where in reality he wore the Steve McQueen Explorer Two, the 1655, and a whole bunch of Rolex ads, which is it's just like kind of. So help
1: help people understand that are not ultra watch collectors and Rolex people why it's so important that some individual wore a particular watch historically. I think that for some people, that's still like, why is this a big deal?
0: Well, maybe it's star power. I think when we look up to people as role models and we, it's human nature, I think, you know, we're, we're very tribal as human beings and we're interested in people that fascinate us. And so to me, like you, you said earlier, uh, Jake's Rolex world has always been kind of like the people magazine of Rolex, um, and Rolex themselves initially, you know, like for instance, um, let's mention you and I met, um, and we did our first podcast together. It was on your podcast. Um, In San Francisco, where uh, I think at the time you were with John Biggs, where he was on the phone and I was at your apartment in San Francisco, and uh, and we did a a, that's what we're doing our podcast, yeah, Yeah, exactly. And we were talking about you know similar subject, uh, which is you know Jake why you so fascinated with the Rolex, and that was a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. Um, But it was an interesting conversation. And then um, you and I were invited by Rolex. To be the uh, first part of the uh, first group of horological bloggers or journalists to tour all of the Rolex facilities in Geneva um, and well around and, Switzerland. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, both. Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, the four facilities, three and three in Geneva, in Bienn. Uh, and one in Bien. And uh, and that was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life, and I imagine yours as well. It just ten and years
1: there, later. Nothing about your zeal for Rolex has waned. Like, you're, it's, you're the exact same Rolex lover no, as you were back no, then.
0: No, it's increased exponentially. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's got, it's got even more? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've learned so much more since then. And the, the more I peel back um, the layers of the onion, the more fascinating it is because I found that whenever I solve a mystery, it, it inevitably leads to another Mystery, or two, or three, or four.
1: What do you try to solve right now?
0: Oh man, um, so much stuff. Um, recently, Jose and I uh, went really, really deep. Um, Ho- Jose from uh, Periscope. Jose Perez. Yes. Yes. Um, who? What, is, what does he call
1: uh, himself? Like a horological forensics researcher?
0: No, no. I actually coined it, that term. Uh, I started referring to him as um, the world's leading. Horological forensics expert.
1: He's um, he's uh he's the he, okay. So let's see what he does. He tries to take a forensics approach using so like like small deviations and pictures and history and things like that to like disclaim sometimes um, statements made by watch brands and things like that about their histories. Um, he tries to like. Certain, certain brands will claim that this watch was used here or used there, and he'll go back through pictures and just inspect, like, was that the watch they were talking about? And a lot of that's because there's so much of the marketing in this industry which is predicated on uh, the sort of notion of historical legitimacy. Like, you know, this French military used us for this. This Italian military used us for this. And that apparently has a lot of sway with consumers because I feel like, oh, well, the historical version of this product today, even though they have nothing to do with one another, is such a big deal – I should spend more for this. So watch brands, um, they want their history to look as good as possible for them. And, you know, they've been known to, I don't know, fudge the facts a little bit. At the end of the day, it's a story. The watch is the watch, but it it means something to collectors. So Jose goes and tries to dispel some of the um, falsehoods that he sees. And because both you and he actually require the historical images, you work together as a good team.
0: Well, the way I see Jose is um, Jose and I work a lot together and have for years. And we're kindred spirits. Um, we're both hardcore researchers. And what's so fascinating is in many ways, we're uh, antithetical to one another in the sense that we're the exact opposites. So I'll give you an example. I am a shallow, superficial ding-dong when oh. it comes to watches. You know, like I'm look, I look at a watch, like a woman, like, oh, look at the lugs, you know, like her legs and what beautiful hands she has, you know, um, I, I very much objectify and have always seen watches as items of beauty. If You're, you know.
1: you're less interested in what's on the inside.
0: <laughs> Almost not interested at all. Yeah. Uh, which is like <laughs> kind of embarrassing. <like> <sighs> but which it's weird. are okay. You, know what, is you, you, own, you it, no, own it. You own it. No, but what's weird is you can't be the world's leading Rolex historian and be like totally stupid on, you know, movements and stuff. Because if you are, like, you know, like it's, it would just be too embarrassing. So along the way, I've not only learned a lot about movements uh, and the history of movements and stuff, but it's it's really fascinating. Um, but it's not been easy for me. But so 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 I'm totally shallow and superficial when it comes to watches. I, I'm into the beauty of them, if you will, or you know, it looks really cool. It's a tool watch kind of thing. Jose is the exact opposite. And Jose uh has a little bit of an accent, which I love. Uh he reminds me of Count Chocula kind of or uh um the Count. I call him the Count. Remember the Count from Sesame Street? So I'm going does, to count to Four. Does he uh, have uh, a tra-
1: uh, a Transylvanian uh, accent? Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well I think um uh, uh he was he he was brought up in switzerland um but i think he spoke german as well so he has this really i love his accent um and uh it's amazing how well he speaks english it's incredible and how articulate he is but um but (laughs) so here's my imitation of jose he's like uh this woman is beautiful look at her spleen isn't it just perfect it's gorgeous you know, like he's like totally <laughs> in the inside of the watch, and well, we're the he, opposite in that sense. Like you I'm have complete, to be. You have I'm to a complete idiot when it comes to movements. But guess what? So is like almost everybody else on planet Earth. So to address what you were talking about was he, because I know him really well. He's he's one of my best friends in the world. Um, I know him very 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 well. Perhaps better than just about anybody knows him. Uh, And I've worked with him so much on researching and stuff. And the one thing he and I have in common is this absolute commitment to truth. Um, And we believe that no matter what, you have to share the truth uh, about everything. Um, You have to be transparent in your findings. And and particularly when you make a mistake and screw up. You know, if if I make a mistake with something... You know, I'm the first to man up and say, hey, you know, I thought my compass was pointing north, it was pointing south. He just made made an
1: enemy of everyone in the luxury industry.
0: (laughs) But what Jose does um, is he just wants the truth. And his argument with Panerai in particular was that uh, they did all this like weird stuff, like they Photoshopped, they took a picture of a store. Um, an old Panerai store. It wasn't a Panerai store. It was an Orological Spisaria store. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they they photoshopped Officini Panerai. In it, and <laughs> I And it wasn't that. there. Yeah. And, um, and he called them out. And he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> like, And he's like, and guys, like, you used Helvetica, which didn't exist back then, as a typeface, you know? Because I think, wasn't Helvetica the London Underground in 1952 or something, the typeface, or is that... But think. that's
1: that's Jose. That's what he does. He'll look. He'll do yeah. the forensics. He'll he'll find yeah. the original picture somehow. He'll show. He'll look at the Photoshop lines. He'll find. He'll be like, but it's not even possible. This font didn't exist. Like this exactly. is serious detective work. And the font, this is all volunteer stuff.
0: You know. Yeah. Well, he he's he's beyond brilliant. I mean, let me tell you this. He like. I kid around with them. And sometimes I call him. um, I'm like, are you Sherlock Holmes or am I Sherlock Holmes? And are you Dr. Watson or am I, you know, we kid around. Um, but he he's beyond brilliant. I mean, he he's the, he's the real deal. He's as real as the real deal gets. And one thing he and I have in common, and I know this cause we've discussed it so much is we just want the truth and nobody needs to have this fake bullshit out there. Cause it's just stupid. But what do you want to you
1: know? do with the truth? Like, what is your objective?
0: Well, the truth is beautiful. You know, I mean, the truth, like Rolex's history, my God, it's like crazy how cool it is. Uh, and certainly, you know, Rolex doesn't need to exaggerate about anything because it's, it's very real. But Panerai's history, like I know Panerai's history. I wrote Panerai's history before Jose did. And then Jose came along and rewrote it based to a large extent on what I had put together.
1: And... Tell people how Panerai and Rolex are, you know, at least in the beginning, really kind of combine, like combine at the hip.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Jose and I worked on uh, two posters together. Yeah, those are on cool. Periscope. Yeah, one's called the complete history or uh, something like the, the complete history of the Rolex Sea Dweller, um, and then the other one is the history of Panerai, and we knocked ourselves out on these things. Um, and they're unbelievable. And if you go to periscope.com, which I think is dot com, and you click on, I think it's like timelines or something like that. Um, you can see them and they're free. That's the crazy thing is they're free. He sells copies of them, but you can actually, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you just click on timelines and I'm looking at him right now. He's got the posters, um, but you can download a super high res one for like a desktop screensaver that's magnificent and beautiful. So we worked on these extensively, and we put together all the pieces of the puzzle, both for Panerai and Rolex. And to answer your question, it's a really fascinating story. Uh, basically, the Royal Italian Navy invented this really interesting technology where they created Meles, which were basically underwater motorcycles, if you will. It was like if you it was like if a uh, a motorcycle had a baby with a torpedo, <laughs> hmm. basically, um, and they were the first, like you know, real frogmen, um, and they did a lot of crazy stuff underwater. But the challenge was, is like with anything else in warfare, it was all based on timing, and they needed a, a waterproof watch. And at the time, Rolex owned the patent on waterproof watches, um, and so they went to them. Um, and spoke with Hans Wilsdorf and said, hey, you know, we really need to, need some kind of watch. And Hans Wilsdorf said, well, you know, what exactly do you need? And they said, well, we want a very visible, big, waterproof watch. And he said, okay, I have an idea. We made a Rolex Oyster pocket watch. It's 47 millimeters. It's unusually large. But we can put a strap on it and put lugs on it. And your guys can wear them on their wrists and we can load them up with radium, it'll glow in the dark like crazy. And that's exactly what they did. It's a very pioneering watch. And those were really um, the first Rolex dive watches ever made. That's a great um, story. Yeah, especially it started with the reference 2533 and then really kind of came into its own with the Rolex reference thirty six. Is there a single
1: word on the Panerai website right now that discusses Rolex? I, I don't know. I'm just
0: curious. I don't believe so, no, yeah. no. Uh, and what happened was, well, here's the funny, if you want a really funny anecdote, basically Rolex made these watches for Panerai for 20 years or so, in very small batches. They were never made available to the public and the originals today, the vintage Panerai are worth a lot of money. Yeah, of course. Um, and they're very cool. They're super cool. And in a weird way, cause they were so big at the time, they're very like, kind of like still today. Uh, I mean, watches are actually getting kind of smaller now, but they're, there, like if you wear a vintage pan right today, it's, it was unusually like prescient or something like that. You know, very modern and well. I mean, it was meant to be
1: worn over a wetsuit and all this. Yeah. Like it did once you had it on with all the other stuff, it didn't look that small anymore.
0: Yeah, it yeah, it didn't look that guys, big anymore.
1: As by mean.
0: yeah, but all the divers warm in their personal life as well. So you, there are, are more photographs than them wearing them just personally, and it's, it's a look, you know, and it's it's kind yeah. of cool. I, I've always liked it. So, funny nice story.
1: diver lifestyle.
0: Well, the funny story is so in so Rolex made these watches, which were a military secret for Panerai for the uh, Italian Royal Navy, up until 1954. So, from 35 to 54, uh, they made these watches basically for 20 years, and then all of a sudden they pretty much stopped. And the question is, well, why did they stop? Well, what what seminal event occurred in 19? Fifty-four, Rolex came out with the Submariner. Oh, and the okay. Submariner—I thought that was fifty-three. Spinning. I thought that was fifty-three. No, no, they were testing prototypes with Jacques Cousteau in the Mediterranean in fifty-three, but they didn't actually launch oh, the watch okay. until It wasn't commercially
1: available. Okay, exactly.
0: Exactly. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> and so, so what happened was the Italian. Uh, Royal Navy divers didn't want these big clunky watches anymore because they didn't have the cool spinning bezel. And everybody wanted the fidget spinner bezel thing, you know, because it could uh, you know t- you could time your dive much better. Is that what um, they referred to it back then as the fidget spinner bezel? No, no, I'm just modernizing it. But back then they just you know they loved it. Um, and and ironically, they also loved the Tudor submariner at the time. So all of them just, like, if they couldn't afford the Rolex Submariner, they would get a Tudor Submariner. Um, And so basically, Panerai died. So collectors over the years marveled at how timeless and beautiful these Art Deco objects were and encouraged the powers that be at Panerai, which was a a military company that made all kinds of stuff for, like, you know... um, Instruments,
1: uh, compasses. Yeah, exactly. Little, like, just, just... it was a dial maker, essentially. They made dials and well, hand. Yeah, no, they all, all they, all,
0: they they also made for the Italian battleships. They made the like glow in the dark <laughs> controls for launching rockets and stuff. Okay, they were a munitions manufacturer, basically. Um, and so, so all these collectors said, "You got to bring these watches back. They're so cool." And they were having some financial issues at the time, and they thought, "Well, why not? You know, let's try it." So they did, and they resurrected the brand. And when they did. This is a true story. It's like so funny. Um, they were like, well, we got to find somebody who can make the watches for us, our old watches. So somebody said, I know, let's go to Rolex because Rolex made the original watches for us. Um, so they said, okay. So they call up Rolex, they get Rolex on the phone and they say, hi, this is a uh, Panerai, we're in Italy. And uh, once upon a time, Rolex made our watches for us, um, except they were a top secret military thing then. and uh, But now everybody knows about it. Um, So there's no breach of confidence here. And uh, we want you to make our watches again. When was this? What year? uh, This was in the 90s. In the 90s.
1: Oh, that must have been a big (laughs)
0: laugh at Rolex. So... Rolex is like, uh, I'm sorry, sir. You've got your you got us confused with a different company. And they're like, no, 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 really, it was you. <laughs> and, and Rolex is like, no, sir. We've only ever made watches for ourselves. And like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, this was like a top secret, and I can prove it to you. And I've got all the records and stuff. And you know, you really did make these watches for for our company. And they're like, sir, I'm sorry, but like. The, I don't know who you have us confused with, but you're confusing us with some other company. It sounds like
1: every hotel I've called in Geneva.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> so they basically blew them off. Um, when in reality, they had made uh, the watches for them, but had forgotten about it. So who
1: did, who did Pat or I go to?
0: They made the, they made them themselves through some supplier. They did, yeah, yeah. And then uh, later on, the Richemont Group uh, yeah. purchased them. And I think, if I recall correctly, the Richemont Group bought them. Uh, it was rumored to be for somewhere around like a million dollars, um, which is crazy if you think about it. They got a lot know, like,
1: of really good deals.
0: Yes, yes, but in particular, they they knocked the ball out of the park with that
1: one. And and Johann Rupert, who's you know still the chairman of the, uh, the Richemont Group, it's it's always known that Panerai is his favorite brand of all of them. Not sure why, but it's 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 he's like he makes it very regularly clear. That he likes Panerai more than the others. Maybe because he got such a good deal. Maybe he likes the look of it. I don't know.
0: Well, because but- he's he's making you know Rolex is on a different day. I mean, you, you'll recall when you and I were at Rolex. I was wearing my PAM three seventy two, <laughs> and the dude who ran the um, the uh, NPN, he's like, yeah, let's take a picture. And like everybody had their Rolex out. Like you had your Rolex, and Ben Kleinrad is and James Tallington. I was wearing my Panerai, and he's like, yeah, hey, you. But you'll watch it back under your sleeve with his Italian accent. You don't need to show it. I'm like, what? You don't recognize a Rolex Oyster cushion case when you see it, <laughs> Joe Boy? Like he had no idea.
1: Yeah, that was that was the funniest thing. That was such an interesting character trait of yours. I just want to repeat. We have to. <laughs> we only have a few more minutes left. You and I are obviously going to have to talk about Rolex a lot more on future superlative episodes. But let's we'll talk for like two, three minutes about this trip, and maybe we can talk more about it next time. But yeah, we went. Yeah. We went to Geneva. And this is a Jake thing to do. Jake wears a Panerai watch when spending a few days with Rolex. You have Rolexes. You're known to have Rolex watches. Yet you go and you just bring a non-Rolex watch. And the Rolex team is just perplexed. They're absolutely perplexed. It was, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but it was amusing to me because... You're right. It was a, a replica of a watch that Rolex had made a long time ago. So you were absolutely spot on that if you had the right education in that, you'd be like, Oh, I see what you did there, Jake. I see what you did there. But everyone <laughs> well, else who didn't know I, wasn't, like,
0: I, was, I was I wasn't doing shtick. Like I wasn't trying to no. you know do something weird. Uh, but, but you wore me, it confused them.
1: These people judge people yeah. they their watch first, and so the first thing everyone met you realized is you're not wearing a Rolex. It was just amazing.
0: But I, but ironically, I was wearing one of the most beautiful Rolex Oyster cushion cases ever made in yes. the history of the world. Yes, and they didn't recognize it because it it seemed foreign to them. But indeed, it was it had as much Rolex DNA as any other Rolex. Um, Look, it, I, su- yeah. I supported it. It was just – can you see how <laughs> i was at the fact that you,
1: you did this very sort of like nuanced, I guess sort of this intellectual – It's not eccentric. It's just like it's – you know, there's like – there's this club of guys that know like Patek Philippe watches by reference number. Like I don't know them by reference numbers. Very few. Maybe a few of them I do. But for the most part, you see all these reference numbers. I have no idea. So it's like you were at a non – Patek Philippe collector event throwing out reference numbers like anyone else has any idea what you're talking about. It was kind of like <laughs> that, you know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah. and 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 what made it more doubly funny is that it stood out that you weren't wearing a Rolex because they knew you to be like Jake's Rolex magazine guy, and so right. these people were just like <laughs> baffled. It wasn't like it, you know what I mean? So right. yes, it was that they missed the interesting point, but just seeing you wearing a non Rolex has baffled them. It was it was amazing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I brought home a Rolex oyster back to the factory where they used to be made and they didn't recognize it, which was fascinatingly bizarre to me. Well, Um, it's not
1: that pictures of it on the wall. And these days, the brands are more, you know, hostile to one another. Let's be honest.
0: I didn't know that. But I I do know that the, you know, I very much consider all the vintage Panerais that were made by Rolex are Rolex as they carry Rolex reference numbers with them um they are the real deal. If you and so, know
1: all that, you know sort of very esoteric stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah but I mean, uh Panerai, you know, Pan- Panerai watches even today, uh are our Rolex is on a different day. Now, granted they've gone off in all kinds of directions um and sometimes doing some pretty weird stuff uh, and and some really cool stuff as well, you know, like uh the um the California dial is like super cool Rolex design language. That it, you know, it's basically. I'm writing an article right now uh, on it, and you know, it's the father of the Submariner. Basically, it, it a lot of that Art Deco DNA got carried over into the Submariner and the GMT Master with the upside down triangle at twelve, and the rectangles at three, six, and nine, the markers, um, and they're still in the Submariner today. It's yeah. this beautiful design language. It's gorgeous.
1: Okay, we're gonna have to end this because we has gone about an hour. Um, this is maybe point zero zero one percent of the total Rolex conversations. I think you're capable of. Yes. Right. Like you can go on. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know until like if you just spoke right now and you had the energy, you'd be speaking until like maybe 2024.
0: Yeah, I, I can wax poetic about Rolex. And yeah. Timekeeping. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. I'm, I'm, it's, it's who I am. You know, I've, it's uh, as strange as it sounds. Um, I've said that when you get this close to the history and like trying to put together historical puzzle pieces, inevitably you become part of that history because you start working with people who are part of that history and you interview them and you inevitably become part of it. And I think that's what what's happened to me. I drank the Kool-Aid. And, um, you did enjoy amount.
1: the Kool-Aid very much.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating. You know, it's very inspirational, and uh, I'll circle back um, to say that it's all about the spirit of inquiry. You know, that's what Rolex, in my mind, is and has always been about. Who, who came up with that term?
1: A spirit, the spirit of in- uh, inquiry. It's such a great. It's it's a Ro- it's such a Rolex term. You know, a British person probably wrote it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The well, spirit I mean, of inquiry. Exactly, but it's true. You know, I mean, it's the the spirit of inquiry. Uh, is is what's marked the upward surge of mankind. If you think about it, whether it's Elon Musk landing rockets, you know, as uh, as Falcon rockets back on Earth to be repurposed to go back. Uh, I mean, really, that's what, what moves the game forward and always has. And Rolex's history is filled with that DNA with a lot of people, you know, from Chuck Yeager to like, you name it, the NASA astronauts, many of which wore their Pepsi GMTs to the moon and back. Uh, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of it. We're
1: going to end with one more question. Sure. And that is, think about Hans Wilsdorf. You know him better than been better than me. Yes. The spirit of inquiry has turned into the spirit of maybe exclusivity for the mm-hmm. watch industry. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you think he would do today? What would be his avenue to success? He just like suddenly materialized. He's running Rolex again. Rolex is what it is. The watch industry is a luxury industry. You know, I know in some broad strokes, what do you think he would do? To, forget what he would think about it. What would he do? What would be his first, you know, three or four steps? Something. Help okay. us understand what he would do these days.
0: So we get in the Rolex time machine. Okay. We go back to 1955 and we pick him up. And we bring him back to today.
1: When did he die?
0: 60, 1960. 60.
1: Okay. So five years before his death. And then you bring him today. 1955, Wills Doors comes today. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah. We sit him down and we say, we're going to give you um, a three hour briefing on what is happened after today until you died. So you Pretty understand, sure. like, sure. so yeah, but so he, you know, catch him up in the high okay. castle or whatever. Yeah. He get him caught up on it. Right. Um, and then you sit down with him and say, okay, you're welcome to restart Rolex if you want. You can take over again as the king of Rolex. And he studies everything that's happened since he died until today. What's the very first thing he is going to trip on hard and just go, whoa, wait a second, back up here. I can tell you what that is. What is it? The court's watch. The court's movement. Okay. Because courts is, I think, in many ways, misunderstood. Um, and if you go back to beta 21, (laughs) uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But if you go back to beta 21, um, and you know, basically the Swiss invented quartz and then abandoned it because they got confused and the Japanese are like, Hey, we know exactly what to do with it. Yeah. The rest is history. But, um, it's actually an incredible story.
1: Like what they were, they, they put so much effort into it and they abandoned it for a lot of controversial
0: reasons. Yes. But um, but I think that would be his first thing he would just totally trip out on and say, wait a minute, you know? Because his whole thing was this precision This came and time- went? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it would be fascinating to see how he would have handled that because that's what he was all about was precision timekeeping. And the weirdest thing that ended up happening though is now, because we're bringing him to today, so then he realizes when Rolex switched from uh, the 31 series, you know, which they came out with what like 30 years ago, and they switched to the 32 series in 2015. They started the 32 series of movements. All of a sudden, it's like you've got these mechanical watches keeping course like time almost. Um, and whoever would have thought that that would happen? Which is you know just adds another layer of like weirdness to the the whole equation. And right around that time. <clears throat> you step into the Apple Watch, and yeah, I have Jake's Apple Watch World as well. <laughs> uh, Jake's Apple Watch World,
1: just on the yeah. Apple Watch.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An Apple blog, Apple Watch blog as well. Um, and uh, but I think he'd be super fascinated. And the great question would be: once he had studied everything, how would he feel? Would he be upset that Rolex didn't invent the Apple Watch or the smart watch? I mean because Rolex invented the smartwatch the GMT master in my mind was the world's first like true like smartwatch if you will because uh, all that's these
1: different lot things. of semantics.
0: Well, mechan- I'm talking mechanically
1: okay but then anything is you know i mean i mean the idea what no, but, but, I mean, would, would he make would he make a stuff, smartwatch today but, you know that's the yeah, question. it's
0: a, well yeah if so l- let's ask the question probably had he not died in 1960, and let's just say he was one of these like weirdos that lived to be like 110 or something, right? If, if he had lived longer, how would it have affected Rolex? And that's a really, really, really fascinating question in, in my mind. Now, what you're referring to is when he passed away, Rolex had come up It just started, I believe, uh, an advertising campaign that said, I want a good watch. Now this is profoundly ironic because today Rolex is like the luxury watch you equate it with luxury. <laughs> the challenge I have with that is luxury is a state. you know like you know 1700 thread, uh, uh, threads per inch, you know sateen cotton is luxury as cotton uh, sea cotton or cash you don't That's- know
1: this, but we have an entire other show, a superlative show where uh, we just talk about this concept of luxury. So I'm looking forward to having you hear that
0: one. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, my background is in is in clothing design and textiles. And, you know, so luxury is a state, you know, um, and, but it's, it's the way something feels, it's a hand. So having a, a metal bracelet on your wrist, there's nothing luxurious about that. Uh, except, you know, I guess the price point or something. It's so, better than a lot of the straps out there, let's be honest. Oh yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. So I, I think first of all, Hans Wilsdorf would be stunned that the folks who ran Rolex did as great of a job as they did over the years. He would be blown away by that completely.
1: And no, it seems um, kind of
0: anomalous. Like, how did this get so rich? Like, what happened? Yeah, but you know, his, you know, they just wanted to make really good watches, and uh, brilliantly, um, Andre Heinegger who took over. And became the director of Rolex after Hans Wilsdorf passed away. It took them three years to appoint him because they were kind of confused. Like, and we he do? was there for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, and and he was the one who really evolved Rolex into the company we know and think of today, which is the luxury brand. Right. And he was so, you know, you ask me what I'm researching or what I'm fascinated with, I'm just all over Andre Heiner because he he was just so fascinating with what he did with a brand architecture of Rolex and how he evolved it and how he had it almost metamorphosized from a, a caterpillar into this beautiful butterfly that just like flew away kind of thing.
1: So Hans Wildorf, he's the one that made it the great tool watch company. Yes. And then his his successor comes in and says, I have this foundation of amazing company that makes great tools. The world needs them in a different way. I'm going to add the luxury element. So these two different personalities came together, you know, and that's important, I think, for a lot of people to realize because you don't know what came first, the luxury or the good watch. And it's the good watch and then the luxury.
0: Well, Andre Heinegger was a hardcore tool watch guy as well. What we discovered, um, Jose discovered, Jose and I discovered it together, super fascinating, is the true history of the Sea Dweller. And once again, we talked about busting myths When I came along, the myth that was perpetuated was that Rolex developed the sea dweller with and for Comex, the French diving company. So I interviewed Henri Germain de Lowe's more than 10 years ago, and he said, no, nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. And what I had discovered, because I'd interviewed Scott Carpenter, the Mercury NASA astronaut, is that Rolex had developed it with the U.S. Navy Sea Lab program. And we, you know, I, I was the one who unearthed that true story, which is mind-boggling. Um, but what happened was, at the time, Comex was an Omega house, which is crazy. Like, a lot of people don't know about this, but they, they were testing, like, Paul Profs and all kinds of crazy stuff. And then Heinegger made Comex an offer they couldn't refuse, um, basically, and uh, and took over. But the reason he did that is because he was so focused on tool watches and having and maintaining Rolex's conquest of the ocean with the Sea Dweller. And if you study the nomenclature from the time with Rolex, and we're, we're going back to the '60s now uh, and the, going into the late '60s or early '70s, it's like totally fascinating because we had this whole like man from Atlantis thing going on, and you know he literally thought we were going to be building cities under the sea, under the ocean we uh,
1: love have to do that someday.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, today, I was speaking uh, with Jean-Michel Cousteau, who's Jacques Cousteau's son. Um, and he, was, he began his career as an architect because he planned to build cities in the ocean. And what's really fascinating is his son, who's Jacques Cousteau's grandson, Fabien Cousteau, is, uh, have you seen his Proteus uh, habitat he's working on?
1: Yeah, he's also involved in the watch industry now. I think with, with, uh, was it Seiko was the last brand he was with? But, uh, you know, he's done all kinds
0: of stuff. Yeah, he's no longer with Seiko. Oh, okay. Um, And he's a free agent now. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where he goes and what he does. But what's so fascinating and mind-blowing, and uh, I spent a lot of time talking to him and interviewing him, and we've grown close and have a a really interesting relationship. Uh, And with his sister, Celine, as well. And he's building the largest habitat in, in the history of the world. Proteus Habitat, um, which will be in 50 feet of water in the Caribbean, and it's 4,000 square feet. And it was designed by Yves Behar, the Swiss designer. Oh, and it's inc- and it's incredible. Designer. It's amazing. And basically, he's going to be dwelling in the sea. He is just like his grandfather with Khan Shelf and his father, Jean-Michel. Uh, he will be uh, the next generation of sea dwellers. But you know real hardcore ones like living on the ocean floor living under uh under you first. open
1: your curtains and the view is like an aquarium i mean how amazing is that
0: oh it's mind boggling what he's working on i mean it's it takes my breath away to see what he's doing and uh and certainly his family's legacy with rolex is just uh incredible because his grandfather tested the submariner uh, Thor Rolex the prototypes in 1953 with his team aboard the Calypso um, so I think what we're seeing hopefully what we're going to see is we're going to see a rebirth of of this exploration that once again leads back to the spirit of inquiry Well, think. and what the world needs today Ariel is we need Jacques Cousteau but he's not here anymore but we need great leaders like him to you know, help the planet, and um, and I think that's something that Rolex is very interested in because you, you're familiar, obviously, with their perpetual planet campaign. So yeah, it'll be. I, I think it, the future is going to be really interesting. Well, we'll look forward to uh,
1: reconvening another ten years to see how far things have come, and <laughs> uh, if we still care so much about about all this stuff. Um, Jake, just remind everyone really quick again where they can find uh, all your stuff, and just rattle off maybe the top three of your websites.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Rolexmagazine.com is the best place to start. And uh, if you're interested in Patek, you can go to uh, as well as Panerai magazine.com And no matter which one of those you land on, all my other blogs are uh, connected to They're them. They're all cross-referenced. Exactly, yeah, including, including uh, teslamagazine.org, um, which is also fascinating. You know, like I said, they're my notebooks. You know, and my, I learn all this fascinating stuff and I want to share it with the world.
1: Well, thank you so much, man. Thank you for coming on, talking about Rolex. We'll talk again more. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Superlative. Jake, we'll see you around here again soon. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.
0: Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe...